We worship an incredible God, amen? Man, he is here, he is holy, he is worthy. Uh, good morning, my name is uh, Brett Jensen, and I am an elder here at Chino Valley Community Church. I'm not Brian Benson, because he's a lot taller than me. And I am grateful for the opportunity to uh, teach from God's Word this morning in our series through Second Peter. Brian is currently on a missions trip over in Africa with a few other members from our church and others from our church and also other pastors local in the community as they're looking at a mission opportunity over there. My prayer this morning is for you guys to be challenged and encouraged in your faith as we study God's Word. So fun fact about me, I actually grew up going to Chino Valley Community Church. I'm a CVCC lifer, okay? Uh, The church uh, was actually four churches that merged together, and so I was part of one of those four churches. I grew up in that church, and as as our church grew, we outgrew a home, and so then we moved from a home to a school, and then we moved from a school to a building, and moved from a building to another building, and eventually we're here. But one of those buildings that I remember was when we met at this industrial, like, warehouse in Chino off of Monta Vista. It was like there was like a lumber facility there, and, and some of you guys may even throw back and remember that place. And as we met there, the kids program had this, this cool Sunday school thing called Awanas. For those of you that aren't familiar with Awanas, it's like Boy Scouts meets Jesus, Okay, And the goal of Awanas is that you would learn and memorize verses. But Awanas was filled with more than just memorizing verses. For Awanas, you got to wear a uniform. And every time I said a verse, I got like a cool little pin on my badge. And then after I said the verse, I got Awana bucks that I could use at the Awana store and like buy stuff. And there was even like an Awana Olympics. And it was super, super cool. And so every week what I would do is I would take my Awana booklet home with me. And then I would study the verses. And then I would come back and then we would try to recite the verses. And really, I just had two motivations when I was doing Awanas. All I wanted to do was get more of these pins on my thing, because that looks super cool. And I wanted more Awana bucks, because then I could use them at the Awana store. And so I would practice these things and memorize the verses. And at the end of it, I memorized a lot of verses in God's Word. But I didn't understand many of them. Because I didn't have to understand them to get the pins on my shirt or the Awana bucks. I just had to recite them. But one of the verses that has stuck with me from Awanas is this passage, uh, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's going to come up right here. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace you have been, it's coming up, I promise. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of your own doing, sorry, not of your it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This verse here explains how we are saved. In order to explain that, I need to kind of backtrack a little bit. So let's go back in time to God's creation. God created the heavens and the earth. He created male and female. He created Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve were, had this relationship with God. But then, spoiler alert, they messed up. Okay? And the Bible calls that sin. And that sin caused a break, caused a, a break in the relationship between us and God. And man then has this relationship that's broken with God, and there's nothing that man can do to fix this broken relationship because we have this sin that is in us. And so God recognized that problem, and God sent his son Jesus, which we, we celebrated with Christmas during Advent. God sent Jesus to come and walk this earth and show us what it looks like to follow God. 
he demonstrated in the way that he interacted with other people. And finally then, Jesus died on the cross. And the reason that Jesus died on the cross was as payment for our sins. So that anyone who believes in that can accept that free gift and spend eternity with God forever. And Ephesians 2, 8, 9 describes that really well. I want to highlight three words in there. The first one is saved. See, for grace you've been saved. And so now when I say the word saved, you go saved from what? Well, saved from eternity away from God. Saved from our sin and our broken relationship. That's what we've been saved from. The second word I want to highlight is grace. We've been saved by grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It's nothing that we can earn. It's nothing that we can deserve. We can't do enough things to get God's grace. It's just given to us. So because God's given it, we've been saved. And the final word I want to highlight is faith. We've been saved by grace through faith. Faith that we believe that Jesus actually and did indeed walked this earth, that he lived a perfect life, and that he died for my sins. This is salvation. The Christian word for this experience is justification. Justification is a legal change that we are no longer guilty before God, but instead we are seen as righteous and holy. I always remember justification as just as if I never sinned. Justification occurs when I recognize my sin, I believe Jesus died for my sins, and then I commit my life to following God. You see, justification is done one time in your life. And as soon as we are justified, we are called Christians or followers of Jesus. Now, my problem was, as a young kid, I don't think I fully got it. Almost all of my reasoning reasoning and understanding both started with that verse and also stopped with that verse. You see, following Jesus is not accepting God's grace in your life and then going back into your day in and day out normal type of life. Following Jesus comes with this desire to live our lives as God intends. You see, being a believer begins with a heart transformation, but it continues with a lifelong pursuit of following God. And I think I would have got it if I had read just one more verse in that passage. I looked at Ephesians 2, 8 and verse 9, but now look at Ephesians 2, 10. The next verse. So we've been saved by grace through faith. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, Ephesians 2.10 lays out that we are God's workmanship created for good works, which he has prepared for us, and we are to walk in them. This word is sanctification. And this is immediately what follows after justification. See, sanctification is a lifelong process where God works with us to rid our lives of our old self as we pursue holiness. Where justification is being declared forgiven, sanctification is the process of being made righteous. I love that verse. It it describes us as his workmanship. The Greek word for that is poema. Say that with me. Let's try it again. Poema. That's better. Okay, good. I'm a, I'm a math teacher, so I make my students do that all the time. Well done. Okay? You guys all get an A on your test. Okay. Poema means beautiful poem or work of art. Meaning when we are his workmanship, 
what that's saying is we are God's beautiful poem. We are God's work of art. Have you ever thought of yourself that way? I mean, this is an incredible truth. That we are God's masterpiece created to do good works. To walk and live in your new identity. To walk as a child of God. To live as a child of God. Remember, there's, not, there's nothing we can do to earn God's approval or gain it. He's already given it to us. God's already given you his love. See, we're living as his children to be ambassadors to the king. So you want to know how to walk like this? You want to know what sanctification looks like? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's where Second Peter picks up. In verses 5 through 11, this is going to walk through the process of sanctification. See, Second Peter is Peter's last letter. It's Second Peter, not First Peter. That should be the big telltale sign. Okay? And he's writing to believers. Believers who know they are justified, who know they are forgiven, and they are busy trying to walk and follow Jesus. And Peter gives them this encouragement. Let's look at verses 5 through 11, 2 Peter 1. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. Verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This passage starts in verse 5. Peter says, for this reason. And you may be going, okay, for what reason, Peter? Well, if you were here last week, you would have listened to Brian, but if you, in case you've forgotten it, all we have to do is go back two verses. Okay? Look at verses 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all, that's to, to believers, to us, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the, from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Peter's saying, for this reason, for the reason that you are partakers in the divine nature, that is, God has sent you the Holy Spirit to live inside you. And he has granted us, his divine power, God has granted us, listen to it, all things needed for life and godliness, like stop and like just think about that for a second. God has given you everything you need for life and everything you need for godliness. What that means then is you are not walking every day unequipped. He's already given it to you because you are justified. And he says, for this reason, now that you are justified, 
Pursue sanctification. And look what it says. Not just pursue sanctification, verse 5, but make every effort to supplement or add to your faith these qualities. Peter is then going to list out here seven qualities that we want to make every effort to add to our faith. To, 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 to bolster our faith with these seven characteristics. And I'm going to go through this list, but it's really, really going to be easy to see a list of these things as a have-to type of list, not a get-to type of list. You guys know the difference between a have-to and a get-to? Okay? I have two young boys. My young boys at dinner time, they have to eat their broccoli. My young boys, they have to do their chores. My boys have to do their homework. There are things they have to do. My boys get to go swimming. My boys get to eat ice cream. Remember, being a believer is so much more than just not going to hell. God has created us for so much more. Being a believer means we no longer want to be slaves to sin. Instead, we want our new lives to look different. Following Jesus means we get to work on our character. And in pursuing these qualities, we will be able to be used by God as his workmanship, his poema, to make an impact on this world. And so Peter is urging us, add to your faith by pursuing these qualities. Here we go. My first point here is a long one. We're going to kind of work our way through it this morning. Pursue sanctification with virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And so we're going to kind of work our way through it one by one. The first one Peter lists out is pursue sanctification with virtue. This can be translated as goodness or moral excellence. It's the same Greek word used in 2 Peter 1.3, two verses earlier, when it's talking about how God called us by his excellence. Virtue is not polishing our lives to make it look better. Virtue is living excellent by the standard that God has given us. You see, when something fulfilled in nature its purpose, it was seen as virtue or excellent. For example, if a plot of land produced crops, it was excellent because it was fulfilling its purpose. A tool is excellent when it does what it's intended to do. And in the same way, we are morally excellent or virtuous when we live as God intends us to live. This means we stand morally for what God wants us to stand for. This is going to impact the choices that we make in our life. It's going to impact the choices we make at our work. It's going to impact the choices that we make as we parent and relate with others. Living with virtue means often you're going to make choices in the different scenarios of your life that are going to be counterintuitive to the world. That they're going to look at your life and go, that's weird. Why don't you let your kids do this? That's weird. How come you don't pursue this? When we live our lives morally excellent, we are adding to our faith virtue. The second one is knowledge. This is adding knowledge of who God is and what he desires from us. To make every effort to understand God's truth, to study his word, to wrestle with your faith and your understanding of God. This knowledge far surpasses just knowing a lot of facts about God. 
You see, we need to know God experientially. We need to understand his truth as we see him work throughout scripture and in our lives. Make every effort to add knowledge means setting time aside for reading his word. Setting time aside for praying and meditating on God's truth in scripture. Asking God to fill you with the Holy Spirit and help you live each day according to his will and desire. And when we know more about God, then we can more clearly understand his purpose for us and how he designed us to live. You see, faith without knowledge will be driven by emotions and it will be influenced by circumstances. So ground your faith in knowledge. Become a student of God's word. Learn his doctrine. And the more that I get to read God's word, the more passionately I follow him. The more that I I learn his doctrine, the more that I wrestle with how does God do these things and why does he do it that way, the more my faith gets grounded in the knowledge of the Lord. I'll never forget an experience I had. I was leading a high school boys Bible study of sophomore guys. Any of you that either have children that are sophomore boys or have experienced sophomore boys, okay, it is quite the experience leading a Bible study of them. And my co-leader and I would would try to do Bible study. We'd usually play a game first and let them get some energy out, let them sweat first. That was like our number one strategy. And then we would read the Bible and we would study the Bible and ask some questions. And it was at times very fruitful and at times very quiet. And we would be reading the Bible and we would always close with prayer requests. And we'd already explained to them, like, hey, we want prayer requests, but, like, you know, like, we want to pray for, like, something, somebody, somebody, somebody. We want to pray for you. What's something that we can pray for in your life? And so many of these studies we'd finish, and we'd go, hey, do you guys have any prayer requests that we could be praying for you this week? And like most times, there was a night where it was crickets. They all just kind of looked around. And we looked back at them. And they looked at us. And then one kid raised his hand. We're like, yes, you. And he goes, pray that I read my Bible more. Yeah. Ooh, me too. I want to read my Bible more. Yeah. Me, I want to. And then my co-leader interrupted him. And he said, no. And I, I, was, I was a little bit taken back. Okay, I, I was like, man, I'm pretty sure we want them reading their Bible more. Like, that's a, that's a good thing. Like, what do you mean no, right? But I'm like quiet, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. What? And he let it sit just the right amount. And my co-leader clarified, no, I will not pray that you read your Bible more. You see, he explained, reading your Bible doesn't require prayer. It requires effort. Now, if you want me to hold you accountable to read your Bible, I can do that. Or if you want me to pray the Holy Spirit helps you understand when you read the Bible, I can do that. And I was so taken back by his response. But he was totally right. And so my question this morning for you is, are you making every effort to add to your faith knowledge? The next one on our list is self-control. Self-control means holding oneself in or taking a grip on yourself. For a believer, it's not the idea that we have become 
the master of ourself. Rather, self-control is that we can have this by reliance on the Holy Spirit. Self-control means we don't let the enjoyable things of this world replace our joy in the Lord. Let me say that again. Self-control means we don't let the enjoyable things of this world replace our joy in the Lord. Let me give you an example. Eating is a, a wonderful thing. Those of you that heard me speak before or know anything about my life, you know that I love food, okay? And of all the food places, I love In-N-Out. Okay? I go to In-N-Out and I get my double-double, no tomato, grilled onions weekly with my family. And I chew into that thing and, oh, it is the best. It is a delight. I enjoy it every time. And eating good food is an incredible blessing from God. I mean, think about it. God could have just made food like sustenance. Like you eat it, it's got no flavor, it fills your tummy, it gives you energy, and you move on. But God created food to have flavor and to be enjoyed. But if we allow eating to replace our joy in the Lord, if we seek that out, then it can easily lead to gluttony. And see, self-control doesn't start and stop with food, though. Self-control can be applied to all areas of your life. How do you do in the area of self-control with drinking? Or sexual desires? What about streaming television shows or following your favorite sports team? Not only how much time do you spend doing these things, but what are you letting your mind and your eyes and your ears consume? Do you have self-control in the way that you spend your money or you, you buy new clothes? Man, this quality for me was I was studying this passage. This is the one that challenged me the most. I read this one and I had to stop and I had to ask myself, do I have self-control in the enjoyable things of this world? You know what my first thought was? I started comparing myself to other people to rationalize my habits and my behaviors. But once I stopped that, I evaluated areas of my life and I identified areas that I needed to work on in self-control. Paul said it this way, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out desires of the flesh. I thought a lot about that passage, that I walk each day led by the Holy Spirit. This idea is that every day is a journey. Every day I'm going to be walking led by the Holy Spirit. And when I get out of sync with God, I recognize it and I go, man, I am not walking led by the Spirit anymore. And I got to get back in line so that I can keep walking led by the Spirit. The next one on our list is steadfastness, number four. Steadfastness means to remain under discipline. It's also translated perseverance. It, it bears this picture of someone holding up this like heavy load and they don't give up during trials or circumstances. Let me explain steadfastness this way. When I was in college, I went and spent a couple summers in Ocean City, New Jersey. And I was there with other college students. And some of these other college students were Midwesterners, okay? And Midwesterners are just different, okay? Uh, and, and most of the time in the coolest ways, okay? And they played this ridiculous game called Buck Buck, okay? 
And this game of buck-buck is, is very easy to understand, and it's quite the spectacle. What buck-buck was is you get seven to ten-ish dudes, and they would go and they would get next to each other real tight and squeeze in, and they would link arms. But they'd link arms in rows of like three or four, and they would all kind of be grounded together, these big dudes, and then they would all hunch over like this. And you would look at this, and there would be this giant platform of backs, then, one by one, guys would go, buck, buck, and then they would run, and then, ah, and Superman fly on top of this pile of backs. Boom. That guy would stay there. Next guy, buck, buck, and they would come. And then the goal of the game was to see how many dudes we could pack on this base of backs. Okay? And more by more, we got like more and more guys like, oh, yeah, send another one, send another one, right? And these guys are showing steadfastness. They are persevering as this burden gets heavier and heavier and heavier. And where the analogy breaks down is eventually they would fall and be hilarious. Okay? But, but they would all be like feeling this weight. This is the idea of steadfastness. It's us bearing a heavy load of trials or circumstances and relying on God for strength. It's bearing a heavy load that is too much for us alone. And it puts us in a position of absolute dependence on God. Remember, we're not pursuing any of these qualities alone. We have the Holy Spirit who has given us, remember verse 3, who has given us all that we need for life and godliness. I love how Paul writes it in Colossians 1.29. He says, I labor according to his power. It's not just persevering, but it's doing this with joy, knowing God is growing your character. James wrote it really well in James 1, verses 2 through 4. Look what James says. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces, here's our word, steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, the tough part of persevering is you can't increase in perseverance Unless there's something to persevere in. Sometimes the joke in Christian circles is you never ever pray for patience or perseverance. Because if you do, God will bring you trials. And although I think this joke is funny, I also believe it identifies a huge issue in our hearts. And the issue is this. Too often we care more about our comfort than our character. God's desire is for us to be holy and set apart. I mean, Christians are supposed to be the salt of the earth, a light on the hill. But too often, I think we'd rather be a little less salty or a little bit dimmer as long as we are a little bit more comfortable. God is more concerned about growing your character than changing your circumstances. Next one on the list, godliness. This word means to live a life that is like God. It's the same word used in verse 3 when it says his divine power 
has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So what that means then in verse 3 is godliness is an indicative, meaning it's a statement that we can hold on as the truth. Godliness is given to us. But here now we see it in verse 6 that it is something also that we are to pursue. And in verse 6 it's used as an imperative, meaning a command. So if you put these together, that means that godliness is not only something that is given to us as an indicative, verse 3, it is also something we are to pursue as a command. Godliness is living out the character of God and is something we are to pursue in our own life. Sometimes as a parent, I get more concerned about trying to teach my kids how to live a godly life instead of pursuing godliness in my own life. Can any of you guys relate to that? Have you ever heard the phrase, most of what children learn is caught, not taught? You see, I have have two amazing parents. They love Jesus. They go to this church. They were in first service. But rarely was it a lesson that they taught me that I remember. I don't remember many lessons where they said, well, Brett, let me tell you, in this scenario, you need to do this. Here's how you show brotherly affection. You know how I learned? I witnessed it in their character. I watched my mom show brotherly affection by meeting the needs of other people. I watched my mom get her day get interrupted so she can go pray for other people. See, my dad didn't have to teach me about perseverance. I witnessed it every day with my dad. As he studied God's word as he looked after his family, as he, as he took care of his wife, my mom. I'm not saying don't teach your children how to live a godly life. But I am saying pursue godliness in your own life and your children will witness it in your character. The next one on the list, brotherly affection. This word is uh, rooted in the Greek word phileo, which is a love that is centered around a common interest. For Christians, our common interest is Jesus. And so what Peter is saying is, as brothers and sisters in Christ, love each other in the church. Look out for the needs of others in this congregation. Make sure as God's people, you create a culture that is welcoming and inviting. A place where people can know that they are loved and where grace is shown. Make this church a place that when they walk through those doors or they come on this campus, people won't have to come with their guards up or a mask on. People can walk in and go, I know I am welcome here. I know people will meet my needs here. I know people love me here. And honestly, I have seen CVCC do an amazing job demonstrating this quality. But my encouragement is as we grow as a church and as we have grown as a church, let's stay intentional in connecting with other people, in praying with one another, in meeting the needs for others as they arrive. And if you're newer here and you haven't felt like the brotherly love, okay, I'd encourage you to get into a smaller group. Get into a, a Bible study or a small group. I mean, our church has like, they have like so many options for you to find people that you can like do life with. 
Okay? We have like a, like a knitting or like a, like a quilting club, I think. Okay? They have like all these different like ministries and studies. Like find something outside of this sanctuary. Because if all you're doing is coming in here and then walking back out, you're not going to feel brotherly affection because you're not going to be known. And at the Welcome Center, there's like all kinds of options. There's Bible studies. Like just get in a group smaller than this and get known. Peter finishes his last one off here with love. I love how Peter finishes off. He's got this list of all these things, and he goes, all right, in case I missed anyone, how about, how about just love? Okay? If you pursue everything, pursue love. This word for love is agape. If you've uh, been a member of CCC, this is one that Brian's taught a lot on. Okay? Agape love is a, a love that has no limits or conditions. Agape love is not limited to fellow believers or only if others show you this love first. See, this is the word, this is one of the words used to describe uh, God. In 1 John 4, 8, it reads, God is love. God is agape. Peter is really trying to challenge believers here to evaluate, do you love others this way? Remember Peter's perspective, right? Peter's writing with experience. Peter spent three years walking day in and day out with Jesus. He got to see Jesus perform incredible miracles. He got to interact with him. He got to hear his teaching. He got to witness all these things. Peter spent three years day in, day out. And when the time came to put your chips down, Jesus was about to be crucified. And people asked, hey, Peter, do you know him? And he denied knowing him three times. Jesus then died was raised, and Jesus then sought out Peter. The first thing he said is, Peter, do you love me? Three times, Jesus affirms Peter. You see, Jesus wanted to make sure that Peter's ministry was rooted and grounded in love. And what he's encouraging the people here today, or in this passage back then in us today, is add to your faith this type of love. Love that has no limits, no conditions, a love that always forgives. Peter began this statement, this list of seven qualities with this phrase, make every effort, or in your translation it may say, apply all diligence in pursuing then these qualities in your sanctification. I thought a lot about that phrase this week. Make every effort. What does it look like for a believer to make every effort to pursue these qualities. And as I was thinking about it and praying over it and talking with my wife about it, I think there are proactive ways and reactive ways we can make every effort. I think proactively, we can set aside time in our day to read God's word. Proactively, I can pray and ask God to show me how to love other people. That I would look with the lens that I go, God, show me who needs love today. Proactively, I can take out my phone and set restrictions or limits. I can delete apps. Proactively, I can set up accountability in my life or join a small group. Those are proactive ways that I can make every effort to add these qualities to my life. Reactively, Reactively is a little bit different. In your day, moment by moment, decision by decisions, you're going to have ways to react 
to things that are going on. And in those moments, when someone interrupts your day, how do you react in showing them brotherly affection? How do you react? How do you respond when I'm at home and we finish dinner and I'm trying to wash the dishes and my kids are like bouncing off the walls, right? And I got to go, how do I parent them at that moment with godliness? As God intends. See, I have to react at times as well. And how do I make every effort? But when we do these things, when we make every effort, both proactively, proactively and reactively, we're pursuing our sanctification. We're working on our character. And we're allowing God to shape us. I titled this sermon, Get to Work. And here's what I mean by that. As a church, let's get to work on our character. And then we'll watch what God does in our lives. Peter explains all these qualities. Hey, pursue your sanctification by adding these things to your faith. But he's not done. He's now going to move on and say, hey, as you pursue these qualities, here's how they sanctify you. Here's how pursuing these qualities sanctify you. In 2 Peter 1.8, here's what it says. For if these qualities, if this list of characteristics are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first one, the way these qualities sanctify us, is by producing fruit. See, these qualities have to be yours and increasing. This is a challenging statement. We can't just demonstrate these qualities like one time. Like, no, 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 I remember that one time I showed love and then be done, right? This is not like a checklist. Nor is this list an a la carte menu. Like, I'll just pick two and then that's it, right? These qualities have to be yours and increasing. And as we pursue them, we're going to be effective in our ministry. And we're going to produce fruit. Man, I do not want my life to be characterized as ineffective or unfruitful. I want to impact those around me. I want to do so in a way that, that my wife, that my kids, I'm a math teacher I already mentioned, that my students in my classroom, that my friends, that my coworkers, they see my life and they're pointed directly to Christ. These aren't a list of qualities to pursue to become a good person. These are qualities for people to pursue who love Jesus. And we have these qualities and increase in these qualities through abiding in Christ. Jesus gave a great illustration in John 15. In John 15, he gives this illustration of, hey, I am the vine and you guys are the branches. Look what he says. Abide in me and I in you as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you produce fruit unless you abide in me. And then verse 8, by this my Father is glorified. That you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As we abide in Christ, as we rely upon him, we will bear fruit. The second one, Peter says, these qualities sanctify us by producing fruit. And B, the next one, by maintaining an eternal perspective. Let's look at how Peter describes it in verse uh, 9. For, if, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. 
I always have to remind myself what nearsighted means. Nearsighted means I can't see far. Yeah? It means that's, that's like us being blind. That is, that we have forgotten that we are cleansed from our former sins, meaning we have forgotten that we were justified and that we wanted our new life to look different than our old life. If Christians lack these qualities, it's because you have forgotten what you are living for. We have stopped looking towards eternity with God, with this eternal mindset of knowing what we're living for, and we've traded that for a temporary mindset, living each day as we see best fit. And if we live each day as we see best fit, we make choices that bring us joy and comfort in the moment. And when we do those choices, this is how sin so easily entangles us. It's how distractions take our focus off of God. And so when distractions or sins arise in your life, identify it, confess it, and then get back to pursuing God. Don't ignore sin. Deal with it. But then get back to pursuing God. Recenter your eyes on what God wants you to live for. And when we live with this eternal perspective, we remember how we are saved. And our purpose on here on earth is to glorify God. Finally, Peter finishes verse 10 this way. He says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. By giving us assurance of our salvation. In pursuing these qualities, you're going to produce fruit. In pursuing these qualities, you're going to maintain an eternal perspective. And you will have assurance of your salvation. Let me clarify with scripture. In Ephesians 1, it says this. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. You see, when we are justified, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And he is the guarantee of our eternal inheritance. Jesus said it this way in John 10. In John 10, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. If we follow Jesus, no one and no thing can separate us from God. Meaning if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, then you are saved. Nothing can separate you from your relationship with God. But your faith cannot stop there. If it does, it exposes a heart that is not transformed. This is going to be very tricky and so I'm going to be very clear. I do not want to have people to leave here doubting their faith and salvation. But I also don't want people sitting here having false hope. You see, salvation is a one-time transformation of the heart with a continuous action. To be saved means that your heart has been transformed. You have put to death your old self and you are pursuing God from that day forward. When you pursue God, you will see fruit in your life. And as a result, you will have no question about your assurance of salvation. 
We are not saved by our good works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 made that abundantly clear. But our works are evidence of a transformation of the heart. James wrote it this way. He said, show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. Fruit is evidence of the transformed heart. And when we produce fruit, we're going to make our calling and election sure. We're going to know that we are God's children. And the last verse here, 2.11. I love how Peter closes this, us this morning. For in this way, in this way of pursuing our sanctification and pursuing these qualities, in making every effort, check it out, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We get to enjoy God now and worship him now. We get to make every effort in pursuing our sanctification. But have you thought about that rich entrance you're going to have in heaven? Right now, when we make the choices to make every effort and pursue sanctification, there are days that it is hard. There are days you go to bed at night tired. But man, have you thought about the day that you get to heaven and God welcomes you in and you go look back at your life and you know it was worth it. You will not regret it. So church, let's get to it. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for, Lord, the opportunity to preach your word. God, I thank you for your, your love that you show us, your grace that you give us. Lord, the opportunity that we can know you. Lord, that you've given us your word that we can read and learn about who you are and what your desire is for us. God, we get to see your character demonstrated with people from story after story. God, I pray that we as a church, Lord, we be people that pursue you. That we make every effort so that people may see us and glorify you. God, we thank you for this morning. We give you all the praise and all the glory and all the honor that you are due. And it is in your wonderful son's name that we pray. Amen.